At the time of the Civil War, around 1862, the federal government produced the Homestead Act. And the Homestead Act was put in place to encourage migration from the East Coast westward. And, you know, it was land and primarily an agrarian endeavor to cultivate the Midwest. And there were other acts that followed the Homestead Act, and they, they were successful. There was a motto that went along with that Western migration, and that motto was, the rain follows the plow. So there was this assumption that if we go out to Kansas, Oklahoma, the Midwest, and we dig and plow and cultivate and plant, the rains will come. And that held up for a number of decades. In fact, it really reached a peak uh, during World War I, so around the 1917 time, the price of wheat escalated because of the deficits that were in Europe. And so everybody was riding high, uh, cultivating. Immediately after that came gas-powered tractors. And if you ever watched the PBS documentary about this, uh, the farmer out there at night with lights on, just tilling up as much ground as they could possibly till. And so for those of you who know, though, the rest of the story, uh, just on the heels of that in the late 1920s came the Great Depression, the, the gutting of wheat prices. And then on the heels of that, one of the worst droughts in the history of America, for sure, that lasted all the way through the 30s and created uh, the Dust Bowl. On April 14th in 1935, uh, people called that day Black Sunday because winds uh, picked up dirt from the Oklahoma panhandle and carried it all the way across to the east and dumped it on major cities. They estimate that three million tons of topsoil were removed from the Midwest on Black Sunday and, and delivered out there. And so what you see sort of in that story is that people got caught up in seeing farming as a purely human endeavor. If you plow, the rains will come. We've got technology. We know how to plant. We've now got tractors. We can all make this happen. And what they found out, that farming was not a purely human endeavor. It obviously involves human effort. But unless the Lord sends the rain and gives the growth, everything comes to naught. And, and the Dust Bowl really showed that. And I think our text today gives us something very similar about the church. That it's very easy for us in our sin to see our life together as a church, people together on mission, in fellowship, worshiping sacraments, a merely human endeavor. We've got teams, we pay people, we have technology, uh, we set things up, there are volunteers. It really is a human endeavor, is it not? But it's very easy then to forget that unless the Lord, as it were, sends the rain or gives the growth, it's really all in vain. And that was the cause of some of the divisions within the Corinthian church was forgetting that the, the church is the Lord's church. He's the one who gives it life and growth. And it doesn't belong to any particular personalities or methods or wisdom. 
that they were trying to attach themselves to with various teachers. And so as you listen to God's Word today, keep all that in mind, uh, seeing that really God is jealous to both grow and guard His church, which He calls His garden and His temple. God is jealous to both grow and guard His church, which He calls His garden and His temple. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's on page 11 in your worship guide. It's a longer reading, so try to read along with me and follow along. 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely or being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So Paul takes the the, the widest angle on the problem there at the end, which I I really appreciate. So again, what we're saying is that God jealously grows and guards his church, which he uses metaphors of a garden and a temple in this passage. So, So we want to say to you today, to myself, that you are God's garden, you are God's temple, and that he guards his church, his local church, with jealousy. So if you uh, begin at verse 5, what you see here is Paul uh, jumps into this, and the the key phrase in this paragraph from 5 to 9 is that 
you are God's field, and I'm, I'm making that you are God's garden. It's a cultivated area. It could be wheat or whatever. Garden has a more poetic uh, ring to me. You are God's garden, and it's God who gives the growth in, in verse 6 and in verse 7. Only God gives the growth. And so you can see the conclusion of this if you understand that it's not merely a human endeavor, it's something that God had to do, that, that it's a miraculous, supernatural thing to have a local church, then it becomes really obvious, why would you be boasting about the workers in the garden? They're just hired wage earners. That's all they are. It's God's garden. It's His growth. So I planted as a gardener and Apollos watered as a gardener, but it's God who gave the growth. So why would you be attached to the workers as opposed to the one whose garden it is? I mean, that's really the summary of this whole text. And he's really pressing on this on the issue of unity. And so it really is, you look around this room and you say, this is a miraculous thing. And again, in our unbelief, we see this merely often as a human endeavor. If you're sitting here and you've been brought from this world age into the age of the Spirit, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Him for forgiveness of sins, you believe that He's the Son of God who was crucified and raised, you're walking in faith repentance. That's an absolute miracle. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic in saying that. God has broken in and done something supernatural to give you faith and repentance and then to gather a bunch of people who have very disparate desires, likes, backgrounds, socioeconomic status, everything like that into one place so that we would be on mission with him as worshipers here in his garden. And so then the idea is, and if we want to put it in in terms of our own history, you know, who is Joe Novenson? Who is David Sinclair? For those of you who are new, these are former pastors here. Now, who's Clay Warner? Who am I? Who, who are the elders? These are just people who are stewards or workers in the garden. But it's God's garden and it's His growth that makes it happen. Now, when you look historically back through things, you, you find that some people really understood this. And one of my prime examples I've told you about before but it really bears repeating. In 1949, there was a revival in the Hebrides Islands off of Scotland. And this was in the lifetime of some people in this room. It's not some remote thing in 1500s. And on that island, there were two ladies, Christine and Peggy Smith. And one was 82 years old, and one was 84 years old. The 82-year-old, Christine, had crippling arthritis. She really couldn't go out or move around much. And the 84-year-old was blind. So they were both kind of homebound. But they knew that young people on their island had fallen away from the church, that they, they weren't attending worship, they weren't following Christ, they had other interests and whatnot. And so they began to pray. And uh, just so you know, when we're talking about this prayer leading to a revival, this is not putting up a sign and saying a special speaker will be here for a week. We're talking about God sending His Spirit and supernaturally growing thousands of people without advertisements, without bullhorns, without special programs, 
simply by His Spirit gathering and saving people. And so what, what Christine and Peggy Smith began to pray was that they were praying from Isaiah 44.3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring. You see, they were after the youth of the church. And they took as a promise that God said, I'm going to pour water on the thirsty land and springs on the dry ground, my spirit on your offspring. So they got in touch with the local pastor there and said, we think that you should be praying. We think you and your officers should be praying twice a week. And me and my sister, we pray from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. every night, praying this promise. So what does this tell you? Now, what God did was he poured out his spirit on the church. There was about a three or four year revival there. And I'll let you go read about the Hebrides revival that, you know, they're preaching in church and they walk out the doors after a four hour meeting where everybody's repenting and believing. There's 600 more people, young people who've come from all over the island without any announcement. God did it. And they all came back inside the church and spent another four hours worshiping and, and, and praying and believing. And so this is the kind of thing that goes on when God sends revival. But the, the point of the matter is, these ladies were seeing clearly by faith that growth and life belongs to God. Now, were there human instruments involved? Sure there were. But that was secondary to what the Lord himself was doing. So we just think about if, if you and I are God's garden, his field, if he's the one who gives growth, what does this mean for us? Well, I think for me, and maybe for you too, it, it shows me a kind of embarrassing prayerlessness. an attachment to strategies. You know, if you're a preacher, you always have this, you always have this debate in your mind. When, when do I rely too much on illustrations and being cute and all that kind of stuff? How boring do I need to be to, to show that this is really from the Holy Spirit? <laughs> that kind of thing. And so you're always, you're always walking this line, but, but it, it reveals a, a, a deficit in seeking the Lord to do only what He can do. And then I think we want to ask ourselves the question about this agrarian metaphor that is God's garden. You know, Jesus uses the same metaphor to say some seed fell in the rocks, some seed fell on the path and was stolen, some fell on the rocks and grew up quickly, some fell in thorns, and the, the growth of those seeds was choked out by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Some seed fell in good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred what was sown. And we just want to ask ourselves, for you and me and for one another, where are we? Who are we? And I think the answer to that question is not a performance answer. How, how well did I multiply what was sown? It's a faith and repentance answer. Am I eagerly trusting Christ, enjoying the love of God, repenting of my idolatries and sins, and walking after Him?
And then God really takes care of the rest of the whole thing. And so then it also involves, and you know, you could carry this metaphor out as far as you want to, I think, but it involves also looking around and rejoicing and being thankful for the people who, who God has gathered with you into this garden and appreciating differences, varieties of, of what he's growing, what he's doing, the variety of gifts and things that are here. So I'm going to let you take up the metaphor of the garden and run with that because we really have to move on after this because what Paul does now, uh, I guess Paul missed English 101 or whatever because he's going to mix up his metaphors now. I, you weren't supposed to do that, but he, he, do, he doesn't have any problems with it because he says right here, you are God's field in verse um, 9. And then he changes immediately to you are God's building. And we're going to say that this is the second point, that you're God's temple. He he goes on to clarify that that building is a temple. And so what he says here, the, the, the you are God's temple, the key verse in here, the, the real anchor point of this is verse 11. No one can lay a foundation for this temple other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the sure and solid foundation. And what Paul says here, if we can use sort of construction terminology, he says, according to the grace of God that was given to me. In other words, God has empowered me by grace. He saved me. He called me by grace. And by grace gave me this appointment as an apostle to build like a skilled master builder. And I just have to tell you, the word for skilled here in the ESV, it's a fine translation, but it's the word for wisdom in Greek. You'll see that they have a footnote in the ESV that says uh, a wise master builder. It doesn't matter. They're kind of synonymous, wise or skilled. But I think if you put wise in there, you see that Paul's taking a poke at all the people who are looking for this Greco-Roman worldly wisdom. He's saying, I do have a wisdom, and my wisdom was to build as a skilled general contractor to lay a foundation that's unshakable, which is Christ crucified and raised. And then he goes on to say, now, all the subs, you know, I, I started this off as a master builder. I planted, I laid a foundation. Now, all the subs, the subcontractors are going to come along, framers, HVAC, plumbing, electric, all the other things that have to be done. They need to be careful that they're building in plumb straight up and down on the foundation that has been laid because there's a judgment day coming. The day is certainly the judgment day when Christ is revealed from heaven with, with his angels and in blazing fire. And that's going to put to the test every builder, every subcontractor's work is going to be tested in that. And we're going to find out if they use cheap materials, wood, hay, and straw, then those things are going to go up in flame. And if they use precious materials and built in plumb, what they built will remain. And just so you know, this analogy is not something odd. And some of you will know about this. For others, it will be a little bit of education. But there's a thing called the American Society of Testing Materials. So sometimes when you buy a pipe or a piece of wood or something, it has ASTM something on it. American Society of Testing Materials. And the whole point of this kind of engineering society is that they lay out standards for testing building materials. And one of the key elements of their standards has to do with fire. 
So if you're working in a hospital and you want to put up a temporary wall, you have to use a fire wall, a wall that's rated to hold back a fire for a certain amount of time. And you can buy one-hour walls, you can buy two-hour walls, depending on what the code is. And if you go out and look at those standards and look at it, you can get a YouTube video. You can put YouTube ASTM standards on there. And you see they have these great big ceramic furnaces with these big blowers that blow out fire, you know, like from a jet engine. And they stick these materials in there and turn on the fire and heat them up to see, you know, is this thing, is the fire going to be transmitted to the other side within one hour, two hours, whatnot, based on the material. So this, this whole image should not be something that's really strange to us. And Paul says the building that goes on in this one is going to be tested by fire. And so what, where do we, you know, what's the application of that? Well, I think obviously the primary application is for preachers and teachers and elders, Right? for people that, CE teachers, people that you look to and say, this is a person in this local congregation who's instructing people. That's what Paul and Apollos were. It would be for church planners and evangelists. That would be primary, but all of us get the application, I think, in a secondary manner, that hopefully you're in fellowship with other believers in this body and when they come and confide in you about their struggles, their difficulties, their joys, their aspirations, uh, th- their desires, are you counseling and speaking consistent with the foundation of Christ crucified? Or are you bending what you're saying to the tune of this age? That's what this is really about, remember? We want somebody who has the wisdom of this world age. And so... Two things really devolve from that. One is that our counsel and fellowship is significant because there's a reward at the end. And we'll talk about the reward in a second. Or a lack of reward at the end in how we've gone about encouraging people to know Christ and persevere with Him to the end. So let's just talk then, what is this reward? And I want to suggest to you that for Paul... His, his primary reward that he has in mind here is seeing these believers walk with Christ all the way to their death or to the return of Christ. And what I want you to listen to is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2.19. This is how Paul characteristically talks about history and the reward. This is what he says to the Thessalonians. After all, who is our hope our joy, our crown of boasting, if it is not you yourselves in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. Do you see what he's saying there? What he's looking for when Jesus returns and he separates the sheep from the goats is that a bunch of the sheep that come through the judgment are people that he was encouraging, preaching to, and doing ministry with. They're his reward. And he would suffer loss if they ended up with the goats. And this is one of the primary reasons why you come to church and sit under preaching and have the means of grace so that you can be strengthened to endure to the end. That's, that's one of the, the callings and functions of, of preachers and, and people who are, are in that in pastoral ministry is to strengthen God's people so that they persevere in the end, to the end with the gospel, so that your work really does matter. Now, 
you get on the heels of that, suppose you're, you're, you're fallible, you're sideways. And in fact, he says in the next chapter that when Jesus comes, he's going to judge the secrets of men's hearts. It also involves motivations and whatnot. And suppose a lot of the ministry that you did ends up you don't see sheep there. Because this isn't about building materials, right? It's not a civil engineering class. The temple is people. And so being burned up in the fire or lost means people that are lost to Christ. And so in the end, what happens then is it says that that teacher, preacher, you yourself will be saved, right? You'll, you'll see your, your work go up in the fire, but you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's what it says. He will suffer loss, the loss of seeing that reward of people that he ministered to, but he himself will be saved. So this, this passage has been tortured in a lot of ways, but I think that this is a fair assessment of, of what this is about. So the thing we want to emphasize here, though, is that you are God's temple saved by grace. I can't even go, uh, time will not allow us to go into the whole thing of the beauty of being a temple, of being living stones, of being a house of praise, of being a place where God dwells by His Holy Spirit uh, with all the gifts on mission to make disciples, uh, giving God praise and worship, loving one another. I'm just going to have to leave that for you to think about. But the point here is that God is growing and guarding His church, which is His garden, and then His temple, and you're the living stones in that temple if you belong to Christ. And then the last thing that we want to emphasize, and really this is the title of the message, is that God is very jealous for His people. And uh, the jealousy of God is something that's not really very well understood. If you have a copy of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he has a great chapter on God being a jealous God, but it's a healthy, good, loving jealousy that he has. And what you see here in verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to summarize this very quickly, he says to the Corinthians, hey Corinthians, I affirmed you in chapter 1 as being holy in Christ. I affirmed you as being delivered out of this world age and the thinking of this world age because you have the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's true of you, But hey, right now, you're acting like people who never left this world age. You're acting in a way that's merely human because there's jealousy and strife among you. How could I treat you as people who have the Spirit? And we have to be really clear about this because there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this kind of thing, I think, in the church. This does not create a permanent category of Christian backsliders. It does not. He's urging these people to repent and then to not be jealous and and full of strife. The, The idea is go ahead and act like what you are, people who are part of a new creation. So that's, that's the first paragraph here. Don't be saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. When you do that, you're just like mere men, like people who are still in the world, in, in, in this world age, who don't have the Spirit. But then he goes, he makes this even more and more pointed about the jealousy of God in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And these are plural yous. This is not personal individual. This is y'all. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple 
and that God's Spirit dwells in you as a church. If anyone, and I'm going to use the word defiles, because I don't think any of us are planning to like, you know, come in and destroy everybody like with a, you know, a roller pack or anything like that. This word for destroy can be defile, corrupt, destroy. If anyone, and the King James actually caught this, if anyone defiles God's temple, meaning you guys, God will destroy him. Pretty jealous God, right? This is what, when, when Jesus showed up with Paul, uh, Saul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is God's identification with his people. For God's temple is holy. You're a people who are set apart, purified in Christ. And you are that temple. So now he really gives them the, <laughs> he really gives these people the injunction there in verse 18. Don't let anyone deceive himself. Don't be deceived. If you think you're wise by wanting to bend everything to Greco-Roman oratory and wisdom uh, standards, become a fool. Become a fool for Christ. And then you won't be boasting about Paul or Apollos or Cephas or anybody because everything's yours. You're in Christ and Christ belongs to God. And so the present, the future, all of eternity, it all belongs to you. Why would you be hung up on men? You see, he, he really sort of gets to the crescendo of this argument about unity. And the thing that we're emphasizing under this point is that God is jealous for his church. This has nothing to do with self-harm or suicide. If you've heard those things in the past, you should put them aside. Um, just let that go. This is about defiling the church. And when you look back then at the Old Testament, I would say the Old Testament gives us examples of defiling the temple, the physical material temple that was in Jerusalem that now has been replaced by the church. And for those of you who love to do eschatology and you're looking for a temple in Jerusalem, Paul's telling you here it's been superseded by you, by Jews and Gentiles together in one body but I digress. I'll just leave that alone. But you are God's holy temple. And so in the Old Testament, though, what you see is you could defile the temple in a couple of different ways. Um, Solomon was the agent of building the temple in Jerusalem. That's about the 10th century. A hundred years later, there was a king named Joash. And this is in 2 Corinthians 12. You can read it later. He got into a conflict with the priests because the priests were collecting money from people but Joash, he never saw any repairs going on in the temple. So he's like, hey guys, fix this place up. Stop collecting the money and you know, making silver bowls and stuff out of it. Don't let this thing decay or become defiled by neglect. And then the other thing that you heard about in the reading from Jeremiah, you can see in 2 Kings 16, there was a king called Ahaz. And you just got to wonder, I don't know, I'm a sinner, I could do anything. These people were sinners too. We have a spirit now, so I think we're in a better spot. But, you know, Ahaz goes off to uh, Damascus 
uh, to meet with Tiglath-Pileser, the, the king of Assyria. And he's in the temple there in Damascus, and he sees an altar that he really likes. So he, he jots down all the measurements and everything, makes a drawing of this altar, and comes back down to the temple in Jerusalem and tells Uriah the priest, build an altar like this one I saw in Damascus to all the starry hosts. So this is an active defilement of the temple, right? So there's neglect, and then there's active defilement. So how does that apply? How does that apply to us? Well, again, you're here today, but you can defile God's holy temple, his people, not this building, his people, simply by neglect. You know, what my life is really about is peace affluence, prosperity. I'm hoping to get my 401k together and slide off into the sunset. Yeah, I don't need to be entangled with all those messy people at church. I don't need to be a a person who tends or works in God's garden, who's concerned about the building of His temple, not this physical structure, the people who are in it, to be pointing them to Christ. I don't necessarily need to be there on Sunday to greet people who look new and and welcome them in and be an active partner in ministry. I I really have a different agenda going in my life. Neglect. Or there can be active defilement. I'm going to, to actively pursue idolatries in my life. I'm, I'm going to actively ignore sort of doctrinal barriers. Um, I think a lot, a lot of times more heart idols that corrupt us. You know, you, you, our heart idols uh, have a corrupting influence on the rest of us here. It robs us of the joy and bounty of the Lord that we can give to other people. And we'll just, we'll just leave that there. But this is an urgent warning from the Lord to honor and be jealous for the local body the way he is jealous for the local body. So uh, this is pretty heavy stuff, I realize today. We've we've gone through a a lot of things, but I think the message is really clear. God jealously grows. He's the one who grows. It should drive us to, to desperate prayer. And he guards his local church, which is his garden, and his temple. May the Lord fill us with his spirit. May he renew us by his spirit so that we can have his view, his metaphors of the church hidden in our hearts and pursue them with our actions. Really, really understanding that it's not all about our actions, right? It's not merely a human endeavor, but God's work he does in and through us. So, God jealously guards and grows His church, His garden, His temple. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we want to thank You for this morning, this day. And Lord, we want to pray that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit, that You would cause us to be concerned about the things that You're concerned about. And Lord, we would ask You to forgive us to the degree that we have a relative prayerlessness in our lives that we're not convinced that you really have to give the growth. Um, At the same time, Lord, we we pray that you would forgive us for our neglect, um, our lack of concern uh, to see people built on the foundation of Christ. 
So in all these things, Lord, we rejoice. Uh, We can come to you and confess, and we can come to you and believe that your blood washes away sin, and that your spirit can empower us to actually take steps to walk these things out as a local body. Lord, have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.